Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Se habla español, abran sus Biblias al libro de Efesios, capítulo 5, versículos 21 a 33. If you're new this Sunday, for the past few months we've been in the book of Ephesians. We're now in the last couple chapters. If you haven't read the Bible ever, or if you haven't opened up a Bible in a long time, or you don't have one this morning, that's okay. This is a safe place to, to learn how to read the Bible, or to reacquaint yourself with the Bible. We have extras under the chairs at the center aisle, or you could just open up your phone's browser and search Ephesians 5. Scroll down to verse 22, and I'll do the rest. The first three chapters of the, the book of Ephesians, they tell us what God has done what he has done in Christ to reconcile us back to God, but also to reconcile us back to one another. Jews and Gentiles, people of all kinds of different ethnicities who are trying to, to gain the upper hand on one another, to prove their superiority over one another, saying, I'm, I'm the ethnicity that is more superior than the next, or we are, we are the people who deserve whatever exercising hostility toward one another, just like we see in the world today. Paul is saying that in Christ, God has reconciled us to one another. And from the, the two warring factions has created one new man. And then, starting in chapter 4, Paul has given us the general shape of what this new life in Christ looks like as it's lived out in the household of God, in, in the church. But next, as we start in Ephesians 5.22, all the way to 6.9, this is a new major section in the book. He now moves on to address what, what this new life in Christ looks like in our own particular households. So he's getting even more specific. It started in the household of God, in the church, and now he's getting down to individual households. It's what, it's what some scholars like to call this section, the household code of the gospel. Paul explains how the realities of the gospel should shape our marriages, how, how the realities of the gospel should shape our parenting, how they should shape how we exercise and experience authority in the workplace, out in the marketplace, wherever we encounter it in our day-to-day -day lives. And he starts this household code section with marriage. So let's together read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives 
as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for what it represents. Thank you for the, for the wives and the husbands in this church now who are walking this out faithfully. Teach us today, Lord, of your good and perfect design. And in it would we see Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This is the marriage passage. This is the most comprehensive teaching on marriage in the Bible. And this is a passage that I'm sure there are some in this room who have been waiting to get to this passage to go, what in the world are we going to say about this passage? What do we believe about this passage? What do we believe about marriage? Oh boy, oh boy. Listen, marriage began just after creation itself, right after the world was created. Between the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, God formed Adam first from the dust, and then God formed Eve from Adam. And then he said in Genesis 2.24, he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh, two, two people have been made one. Did, did, do you hear echoes of anything else we've heard in the rest of the, of the series in Ephesians in that? Two having been made one? If you do hear an echo, hold on to that. We'll get there. That's very important. But for thousands of years, God has preserved this beautiful institution, this institution of marriage between one man and one woman. And, he, and he's built every society and history on this foundational institution. But marriage is in crisis. Marriage is in crisis. Divorce in marriage to most is as viable an option as breaking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Young, young people are waiting to get married until later in their lives than at any other point in history, if they're getting married at all. Because of that, marriage rates and, and birth rates are at all-time lows in America. And not just in America, all around the world. Beyond that, attempt after attempt has been made to, to literally redefine what God created from the beginning of time itself. Commentator Andreas Kostenberger says, The current cultural crisis, however, is merely symptomatic of a deep-seated spiritual crisis that continues to gnaw at the foundations of our once-shared societal values, 
Listen to this. If God the Creator is in fact, as the Bible teaches, if he did institute marriage and the family, and if there is an evil being called Satan who wages war against God's creative purposes in this world, it should come as no surprise that the divine foundation of these institutions has come under massive attack. So we need a different perspective to understand that the cultural crisis really is a spiritual crisis. And Paul, as he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he understood that those forces were just as fiercely aligned against God then as they are now. And because of that, he wants his readers to see, and he wants, he wants us to see what's at stake in marriage. He wants us to have the right perspective. What he wants us to see is that marriage is the critical picture the world needs to see the beauty of the gospel. Marriage is the critical picture the world needs to see the beauty of the gospel. And that is not an overstatement. That's not an exaggeration. So before we go any further, just a couple comments. One, this would be a great message to take notes on because we're going to go deep into the biblical data. We're going to lay some serious foundations here. And in fact, so big is this topic that we're going to preach sort of like an an appendix sermon at at the end of the the book of Ephesians on marriage as sort of like a, a part two to this to make sure that that we're doing our best to to answer whatever questions might be out there. Uh, Secondly, how to listen to this message. If you are married, listen to this as as God's call to you. This should be wonderfully sobering. It it transcends culture and time. If, If you are a young single person, this should help you to build a vision for marriage, for, for what, what you should aspire to. For singles, shall we say, with, with life experience. <laughs> Listen to this by, with an intent to, to clarify your vision for, for how you can play a role in strengthening marriages in the church. So, three points for the rest of our time today. One, equal in value, different in role, beautiful in meaning. Equal in value, different in role, beautiful in meaning. Start with equal in value. And we're, we're going outside of our text this morning to establish this because this is massively, massively important. Because before we say a word about what a husband or wife must do, we have to talk about who they are. Because before Genesis 2.24 was Genesis 1.27, which said, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It was one creature in all of creation that's said to bear the image of God. And that's humans. And males and females both equally carry that high, dignified distinction. 
of being made in the image of God. Wayne Grudem says, any discussion of manhood and womanhood in the Bible must start here. Must start here. Every time we look at each other or talk to each other as men and women, we should remember that the person we're talking to is a creature of God who is more like God than anything else in the universe. And men and women share that status equally. Therefore, we should treat men and women with equal dignity, and we should think of men and women as having equal value. We are both in the image of God, and we have both been so since the very day that God created us. You want a basis for equality? There is no deeper or stronger basis for true equality than that. Wayne Grudem continues, he says, yet we can say even more. If men and women are equally in the image of God, then we are equally important to God and equally valuable to him. We have equal worth before him for all eternity, for this is how we were created. Listen to this. If God thinks us to be equal in value, then that settles forever the question of personal worth. Let me say that again. If God thinks us to be equal in value, then that settles forever the question of personal worth. It's done. That can never change. For God's evaluation is the true standard of personal value for all eternity. Listen, because of sin, we still try to assert our own dominance and our own value on the basis of our gender and on the basis of other external factors. And that is the very point of what Paul has been talking about in Ephesians 1 through 3. He's saying sin has set you against one another and created hostility toward one another and, and cause you to look at your external characteristics as what is valuable about you. But through Christ, he has made you both one. He has restored in you that central core identity that's not grounded in, in physical characteristics. It's grounded in God himself and the work that he's done in you. Which is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, going back there for just, just a second, which is why he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off from one another have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither now in Christ, there is neither now Jew nor Greek. That doesn't matter in terms of your, of your value. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are, one, you are all one in Christ. Is Paul saying all of a sudden we've become androgynous and genderless? No, he's saying that no longer is, the, is any basis for your value. Your value is in Christ. 
by grace, through faith in Christ, we have been made one in Christ. We've achieved authentic equality in value. There is no deeper equality than this in all the earth. You won't find it. You won't find it. So that's where we start. Equal in value, but different in role. Second point, different in role. Before we look at these two roles, the role of the wife and the role of the husband, let me make this statement. And again, this is an important foundation. We're going to go outside of Ephesians 5 for just a moment. But listen to this. Roles originate with God. Roles originate with God. God defined, or, uh, defined roles and, and, and distinct functions are, are actually timeless and divine. These, these concepts, they didn't originate with a particular culture or period of history or as a result of the fall or even in the church. They are a part of the eternal unity and harmony of the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and how they have related to one another since before time began. Think of this. Think of this. God the Father has legitimate authority over the Son. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 says, The head of Christ is God the Father. Not only does the Father have authority over God the Son, God the Son delights to do the will of the Father. John 6, 38. He says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Not only does the Son submit to the Father, and the Father have authority over the Son, but God the Son sent and has authority over the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus says to his his disciples, I will send you a helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and he will not speak on his his own authority, but on mine. Now let me ask you this. Does the submission of Jesus to God the Father, or the submission of the Holy Spirit to Jesus, decrease their value in any way? No. They are all equally divine. They have forever been and forever will be. So with that, let's look at the role of the wife and the role of the husband. Read verses 22 through 24 with me. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as a wife submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 22, wives submit to your own, to your own husbands. This is not women submit to all men. No, no, no. This is talking about within this, this institution. And if you think, gosh, maybe this is just something Paul said once and it's really just for this church. Uh, and, and we can just sort of limit it to that context. No, I mean, <laughs> Titus 
He says the same thing. Colossians 3.18 says the same thing. Peter says to his readers in Rome in 1 Peter 3.1, he says the same thing. This is the consistent biblical perspective on roles in marriage. And if you're scandalized by this word, submit. Because in this day and age, that does just sound like a scandalous word where authority is just something you just don't do, you don't talk about. I want to offer you a perspective that maybe you've never considered. Even outside, we read last week, Ephesians 5.21, submit all of you to one another. And we'll cover that in in just a moment. But even outside of that command, we are all, we are all being called to submit. Submission is being demanded from every one of us in the world. Submission to what? What do I mean? Submission to individualism. My truth, my happiness, my choices. And if you don't celebrate my choices, you are wrong. If you don't promote my happiness in the way that I want it, you're toxic. And that's the general atmosphere around us. It is this demand for submission to the will of the individual. It is the demand for submission to the will of the self-fulfilling desires of every person. And it just feels like chaos. Does it not? So we just sort of keep our distance from one another. We don't want to offend one another. Because if we get too close, we're going to have to submit to the will of the individual. And nobody's actually saying the word submit, but the fierceness of the cultural pressure to submit to the, indiv- to the will of the individual is felt. But notice, notice that Paul is advocating something here in 522 that is completely different. And it is preceded by what we heard last week in 521, the call for all of us in the church to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, mind you, submission is not a one-way street. In the church, submission generally is a two-way street. All of us sacrificing our own self-interest for the sake of one another. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's another way of Paul stating, submit to one another. Count others as more significant than yourselves. So that's generally what we are all called to Mutually, but then specifically within marriage, Paul moves from the general and the mutual to the ordered and specific. And if you're still scandalized right now by this idea, just hang on. Hang with me. What does Paul say after his command to wives here? What does he say? Look down at 22. As to the Lord. Not however your husband demands that you submit to him. No, no, no. As to the Lord. As to the Lord. You, Christian wife, are part of the church. How does the church relate to Christ? By joyfully following and submitting to his leadership. Right? 
So Christian wife, submit to your husband in a way that is reflective of how, you're, how you as a Christian submit to Jesus. Let me ask you this. Does the church ever begrudge submitting to Jesus? No. It's our highest joy to, to follow Jesus. Why? Because it's Jesus. And he gave himself up for us. And he's perfect in love and perfect in goodness. The church doesn't begrudge following Jesus because of who she's following. But human husbands are not Jesus. I am not Jesus. Jason, you're great, but you're not Jesus. Jim, you're fantastic, but you're not Jesus. Truman, man, just wonderful, but you're not Jesus. The church's submission to Jesus is a no-brainer. And that's ultimately who every wife is following. She is following her sinful and imperfect husband as he is following Christ. That is critical. John Piper said, Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. She submits out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. The supreme authority of Christ qualifies the authority of her husband. She should never follow her husband into sin. Piper defines what, what this biblical submission looks like. It, it, it's, it's proper to speak of it as a disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. So, so it's submission. It's not subjection we're talking about. And that's oftentimes what it's painted as. A total abandonment of, of the personal will to the whims of the husband. No, no, no. It's intelligent, joyful followership. So what submission is not it's not following your husband into sin, never. It's not blind and passive participation in marriage. It's nothing resembling being a doormat. It's not a total surrender of the wife's will. It's not <laughs> never getting a job or going to college, as has been erroneously applied. In, in ages past or in different parts of the world, what it is, is living in marriage, intentionally working to make your husband's leadership successful. And leadership, by the way, further down in the passage, is defined. Successful leadership is defined. That's not up to him to, to determine. How she can walk this out in, in a faithful way is, is influencing him toward godliness. First Peter 3, 1 through 2, or 3, 1 through 2 says that, that he may be one without a word by her example. She can do this by, by helping him see God at work in their home or in, in his life, helping him overcome sin, bringing, bringing courageous correction. To ensure that the, the, the home and the family is moving in the direction of godliness. It, it looks like actively using your gifts within your marriage. And, and 
I'll, I'll just say, we've been married for, for 14 years, and my wife does this spectacularly. She does. She goes toe-to-toe with me when I'm in sin and I'm blind to it. She doesn't cower and go, oh, well, got to submit to him. No. She understands that she is following Christ before she's following me. And our home needs a leader who's following Jesus. She models kindness and selflessness to me. She spurs me on to greater godliness. She joyfully walks in supporting me and building our home as I provide for our family, but she calls me out when my work becomes too all-consuming. There have been multiple seasons where where we have both agreed that it would be good and right for her to go get a job. And that's been a wonderful thing. There are decisions that she has the liberty to make herself, but she looks to me to make the decisions that guide the direction and future of our family, and she gives her input, even when her input is different from my opinion, and a lot of times, her input is what wins the day. Because she's actually quite a bit smarter than I am. And you know that to be true. So it's not to say husbands are smarter, husbands are stronger, husbands are better. No, no, no. We've already established equal in value. Commentator Max Turner, he actually identifies that the call for the wife to follow her husband was virtually a universal convention of Paul's world. So submission wasn't what was shocking in this passage to the ancient world. That was like, well, yeah, of course, that's, that's what wives should do, even though it was, it was abusively applied in that day and age. What was shocking was what he said to the husbands. Read verses 25 through 29 with me. Now, husbands, and if you're a husband in this room, listen up. This is about to get crazy. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Husbands, love love your wives as Christ loved the church. I want you to put this in perspective. Here's the command. Wives, follow your husbands. Husbands, die for your wives. How does Christ relate to his bride, to the church? Two ways. In love and as its head. In love and in leadership. First, in love. Pastor Gary Ricucci says, in one small but inexhaustible commandment is the essence of the husband's role and high calling in marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you're a husband, you should be sitting there thinking right now, I can't 
Benjamin Palmer said, and listen to this, because too often we make it, or, or it's made about leadership and authority. Listen to this. It is worthy of special notice that in all biblical commands to husbands, the great duty enforced upon him is love. It's love. The injunction to love is clearly designed to comprehend the entire office of the husband. If you were to summarize the job description of the husband in one word, it wouldn't be authority. Wouldn't be wouldn't even be leadership. Wouldn't be provider. Be love. What does this love look like? Well, look down at the text. Look at verse 25. As Christ loved the church. 1 John 4.19 says, We love, why? Because he first loved us. So the, so, so the love of a husband, the love of Christ, looks like love that takes initiative. It doesn't wait for initiative to be taken, to be taken toward it. It doesn't wait to be loved before it loves. No, no, it takes the initiative. How else? Look at verse 25 again. And gave himself up for her. Looks like initiative. It also looks like self-sacrifice. Not, not pursuing your own self-interest. No, no. Sacrificing your self-interest for the sake of your wife and her interests. Look at verse 20, 25 again. Gave himself up. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that tell us about the kind of love that Christ modeled for us? It's love that's on the basis of grace. So on the, taking initiative, self-sacrifice, on the basis of grace, not on performance. It is not love that gives itself to its object if its object has met his expectations. No, no. It's love that gives and sacrifices and takes initiative on the basis of grace, never on performance. Verse 26, washing of the water with the word. It's, it's commitment to her growth in Christ. And guys, this has a particular force for us because we can only follow the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, if we follow the first great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Mark 12, 30. So your investment in your own spiritual life, in your own spiritual disciplines, will help you to actually follow this injunction from, from Christ himself to love your wife in this way. Finally, so we've got taking initiative, self-sacrifice on the basis of grace, commitment to her growth in Christ. Fifth, completely. How do you love? Completely. Verse 27, that he might present her to Jesus on that day, holy and without blemish. Never stop. This is your role till death do us part. And, and bear in mind, remember, husbands, your wife, ultimately, you're one flesh with her, but she doesn't belong to you. She belongs to Jesus. 
And on that day when he returns, or you see him face to face after you both pass from this earth, she's going to be presented to her Savior, whom you hopefully have been representing to her in your marriage. And then there are verses 28 and 29. Look down there with me. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, I could go on for days <laughs> about what Christ-like love from husbands toward wives in marriage looks like. But for, for the sake of time, ne- next to saying be willing to die for her, let me say the next possible strongest thing. Verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Here's the point, guys. Whose belly do you make sure gets fed three times a day and is sufficiently full, sometimes overly full, by the end of every day? Whose teeth do you brush? Whose body do you put clothes on? Whose body do you exercise? Whose body do you rest for eight hours a night? Whose happiness are you most concerned with on a daily basis? Whose financial well-being do you think about most often? It's yours! You! It is your body, it is yourself that you spend the most time, most frequently, focusing on its health and its happiness. So how much should you, should you care for the interests of your wife? At least as much as your own. Goodness gracious. Guys, the, the standard is very, very, very high here. And I'm not trying to soften it in any way because God isn't trying to soften it in any way. Because these women that he has given to you as wives are too precious to lower the standard by a single degree. Nourish your wife's soul. Cherish her as the crown of your life. Tell her how much she means to you daily and in different ways. Wear yourself out for her. Do not be satisfied with anything less than her joy. And you younger single guys who are aspiring to be married, set your bar no lower than this. No lower than this. No, you can't do it. You can't. That's why you need grace. That's why you need Jesus. That's why this whole thing is about Jesus. And it makes perfect sense to do this, to take care of her this way, because you're one flesh. It's why Paul says, <laughs> it's why Paul says he who loves his wife loves himself, because you're one flesh. It literally is your body. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Oh man, cherish your wife. But the second way, second way that, that, that Jesus relates to his church, first way is love, second way is, is as its head, is to lead. And listen, the kind of leadership commanded of husbands is modeled by Jesus and qualified by love. If your leadership does not have love, it's not leadership. 
If your leadership does not have love, it is, if it is not characterized by love, it's not leadership. Now, the leadership that husbands are called to, it's real leadership. Paul, Paul says here in, in 23, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And that, that same statement is made six other times throughout the New Testament. And there have been scholarly attempts to prove that that word head actually means source or, or something else. And that's been advanced in, in modern scholarly circles. But scholar Wayne Grudem said, okay, hold on. I want to actually look at the, the usage of this word kephale, which is the Greek word here for head. Not only in the Bible, but in, in as many Greek sources as we can from that 300-year period. And he evaluated 2,334 instances of that word kephale, and it never means source. It, it, it always denotes authority, initiative, responsibility. So it's, it's real leadership that husbands are called to, called to here, but it is servant leadership through and through. Two, two ways that this leadership can functionally look like within your marriages, guys. One is taking responsibility. And there, there are a lot of men who want to be respected, who want to be, who want to be followed, but they have, no interest in, they have no interest in taking the responsibility to lead with love. They have no interest in taking responsibility to own up to their role in the problems of their marriages, to own up to their own sin, taking the responsibility to actually disciple their children and take an active role in parenting, to take the responsibility to make the hard decisions for, for a family when necessary, to get out there and earn a living for the family, even if it means working more than 40 hours a week, whatever it is, it looks like responsibility. It is not less than responsibility. Secondly, leadership looks like setting an example and tone. Setting an example of godliness, of gentleness, of humility. Gary Ricucci says, if there's going to be an environment of love in the home, it's the husband's responsibility to create and foster it. So let me ask you this. How different does this sound from the, the pictures of leadership and authority that, that you had in your mind when you read this passage at first? Or how different is it than, than, the, than the world's common conception of leadership and authority? Quite different, isn't it? It's leadership that looks at the interests of those that it leads and says, I will serve their interests even if it means me dying for them. It's Jesus who taught us to do this. Don't you see the beauty in this? This is a wife who's committed to the success and joy of her husband as he leads the family toward Jesus. It's a husband who's committed to making his wife the queen that Jesus deserves to receive on that day. Both roles are built on denying self-interest for the sake of the other. Why did God build marriages this way? Well, one, is for the sake of order and peace. 
But it's actually even deeper than that. Third point here, beautiful in meaning. Marriage is beautiful in what it means, what it symbolizes. Verses 31 through 33. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, meaning this mystery, why God created this, all those, all those years ago, in some of the first moments of creation, this mystery of why he joined this first man and first woman together in this way, why he did it, this mystery, verse 32, is profound. And I'm saying, after all these years, I'm pulling the covers off. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Not only does the relationship between Christ and the church set a helpful model for marriage, the relationship between Christ and the church is what marriage is about. Since God created marriage, this was his purpose for marriage, to put that on display. Two people with competing interests made into one person with one great interest, the glory of Jesus. That is exactly what Ephesians 1-3 through is about, what God has created in the church. In macro, this is the, the grand mystery of the gospel in all of history. And Jesus, or, and, and Paul says, marriage is that in micro. If somebody wants to see the magnificence of what Jesus has created through his blood on the cross in the church, if, if somebody wants to see the depth of love that Jesus has for his people, The great mystery revealed of why God created marriage is that it was made to visibly reveal history's greatest mystery. You lose biblical marriage, you lose history's greatest symbol of history's most beautiful reality. God designed marriage at the creation of the world to reflect the love of his son for his church, his bride. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is how Christians testify to the truth of the gospel. True marriage is an illustration of the New Testament teaching about love. That is the place where it should be seen, if anywhere, so that, it, so that anyone who comes to visit you will be staggered, will be taken aback by this and ask, what is this? In other words, the gospel is beautiful, and unlike anything else in all of creation, Marriage showcases that beauty for what it is. More than any other sermon that I'll ever preach, my marriage has the capacity to testify to the beauty of the gospel. More than any other book you will ever read, godly marriage has the capacity to testify to the beauty of the gospel more than any other relationship between any other Christian. So, as we close, and I know I'm getting long on time, I tried to fit this, this sermon into a short period of time, which is a fool's errand. But let me just give three points of application. And it's really application for three different groups of people. Okay. And the first group of people I want to talk application with is those who came into this message nervous about the idea 
of biblical leadership and submission. Those who are going, ooh, I don't know about that. Let me ask you this. Do you believe God is there? If so, do you believe the Bible is His words? If so, do you believe that He knows best? If so, do you believe that He is entirely good? If your answer is yes, then your struggle doesn't come from believing that this is true. It, it, it likely comes from bad applications of Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. When it's made to be something that it's not. When husbands domineer over their wives, where they abdicate their authority, and there's, there's an absence of leadership, so somebody's got to step up. Or it comes from bad assumptions about what leadership and submission are. Or from cultural pressure to broaden marriage beyond how God has defined it. But whatever it is, here's the application. Delight in God's wisdom and design. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, my goodness, it's not something that we should shy away from or apologize for and go, you know, we actually think that that's what God said. No, we should delight in it as God's wise and good design. Two, husbands and wives, those of you in here who are currently married, here's the application. Testify to the truth of the gospel in your marriage. Testify to the truth of the gospel in your marriage as husbands and as wives. I don't know if you've ever watched Sports Center. It's the sort of sports highlight show on ESPN that's been going on for, for decades. Uh, usually every night they have a, a, a top 10 plays of the day. Sometimes they have the not top 10. Um, here's, here's the not application for husbands and wives, okay? The not application is do not demand submission and respect from your wife, husbands, ever. Wives, do not demand a particular kind of leadership from your husband before you joyfully follow him. Okay? You can't make your, your obedience to these principles contingent on your spouse's obedience to them. Because if you do, it's just, <laughs> neither of you will actually obey this and begin to walk this out. So it's not, I'll lead you and love you sacrificially as soon as you respect me. It's not, I'll respect you as soon as you pick up the slack and start leading this home in the way that I think you should. I don't know. Wives, make your husband's role a joy. And trust that if you walk out what the Lord has called you to, the Lord will do something in your husband. Likewise, husbands, love your wives sacrificially without any qualification, no matter how she responds to you ever. You love her like Christ loved the church. Never contingent on her response to you. Give her an example of leadership worth following. That's the call. Give her something worth following. Finally, 
to the unmarried, widowed, and divorced. It's not that, well, well, that's married people there. I've got nothing to do with this. No, 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 no. Work to defend and strengthen marriages. All around you, at any point in time in the church, there, there are husbands and wives struggling in their marriages. There may be wives and husbands thinking about that word divorce and going, maybe I just need out. Or who are settled in, in their disobedience to what, what God has called them to and feeling like, well, it's okay I'm doing this because they're acting like such a jerk in that way. Help the husbands and wives around you. Help your friends to walk joyfully in faithfulness to Jesus as to the Lord in all they do. Don't tolerate bad applications of this. Gently correct your married friends. Frequently remind your married friends of God's grand design. Why? Because our Santa Ana neighbors need to see the beauty of the gospel. Marriage is the critical picture they need to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this picture. Thank you for this symbol. Thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the godly husbands and the godly wives in this church who are testifying to the beauty of the gospel. We ask that you would continue to give grace and strengthen every single one of them, build new marriages that testify of your grace. Amen.